This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. The U.S. labor market, as you've been hearing from Charlie and others right here at Bloomberg, continuing to regain some ground in July. It was at a slower pace, indicating the economic rebound still making headway despite a surge in coronavirus infections. Larry Kudlow, the president's chief economic advisor, head of the National Economic Council, weighed in about the report earlier on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg TV. This was a hotspot payroll report. This was July 20th to 18. And the surging hotspots in the South and West and some other places began in the back end of June and lasted through July. You know, there was some pullback of reopenings and so forth. And yet, and yet, we still got uh, 1.8 million with a big decline, almost a full percentage point drop in the unemployment rate, which will move to single digits uh, easily in the summer and fall. It seems like just about anybody looking at this had the end yet, regardless of uh, what you made of it. Let's put it to Chris Liu, senior fellow at University of Virginia's Miller Center. He, of course, is former deputy secretary of labor under President Obama. He joins us on the phone from in and around the nation's capital. So, Chris, as you've had a little bit of time, a few hours to digest this, and you know the mechanics of this better than anyone what should we take away from this specific jobs report? Well, look, I, I think the top line number, 1.8 million, as well as the drop in unemployment, were both positive signs. But I think when you look beneath this, you know, you also have to consider the context that we lost about 22 million jobs in the spring. Uh, we are still down about 13 million jobs. Uh, and, it, and it's pretty obvious that the economy or the economic recovery is slowing pretty dramatically from what we saw uh, two, three months ago. Um, so there are a couple things that I look at. I look at, uh, you know, the 5 million people that have left the workforce. Um, obviously, we saw yesterday that about 31 million people are on unemployment. So we're still in a pretty big hole. And, you know, again, I mean, this sort of confirms what we've always known, which is we're never going to have a sustained recovery uh, until we get our arms around this virus. And, you know, every time this kind of breaks out in a different part of the country, we have these reopenings being paused or rolled back again. Uh, And that's just a really tough environment for this economy to get any legs in. So then what kind of visibility would you think you might be able to feel comfortable talking about, Chris, in terms of the types of labor reports that maybe we should all get ready for over the next few months as a society? Because we know the vaccine's coming, but the dates are maybe the end of the year, maybe early next year. Well, look, I think, I think we're going to continue to kind of climb out of this hole, uh, but I would take issue with where Larry Kudlow is as to whether, you know, this is really kind of a hot spot or a V-shaped recovery. I think it's kind of crawling out of this. And I think what we see in, and among the different data that we've seen over the last couple of weeks, you know, some concerns whether temporary layoffs or what we thought were temporary are now going to become permanent. Um, we continue to have this issue about uh, state and local government employees and whether they're going to face layoffs 
if there's no relief from Washington as well. And the other thing I just sort of look in this number, I mean, two-thirds of the gains in these report were from basically leisure, hospitality, restaurants, and retail. And we know that those are kind of the industries where it really, there's a lot of face-to-face interaction with people. And you do wonder if we can't get our arms around this pandemic, um, whether the gains just sort of stop at that point and whether people are just going to permanently change their spending habits. Um, You know, it's hard to imagine kind of the travel and tourism industry going back to normal anytime soon. All right. So, Chris, you mentioned uh, help coming from Washington, and that's where I want to go next because I feel like everyday folks, and I would put myself in that category, even knowing enough to be dangerous, (laughs) looking at Washington think, hold on a second. Like, there's a clear need here. Why can't these guys get together and agree on something? What's going on? I mean, help us understand what the stalemate is and what you think may happen, given that you know how Congress works. You've worked there. Yeah, I mean, look, the lesson we learned from the Great Recession is that if you come to the table with too little stimulus or you end it too quickly, uh, it means the downturn goes on longer. You know, during in 2009, the Obama administration got an $800 billion stimulus package passed, and that was it. And, you know, we're now talking trillions of dollars that have already spent. Uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, a, uh, a House Democratic proposal of about $3 trillion, and then the White House coming in at about a trillion right now. And so I applaud them for saying more money needs to go in. Um, but it's very clear when you look at things like enhanced unemployment benefits, whether you look at kind of assistance to state and local governments, particularly assistance to schools that are trying to reopen, uh, there is a real financial need around the country right now. Um, and I guess the only question is, is can they compromise in the middle? I think that they probably will. Mm. Um, but, but I do wonder about, you know, all of those people trying to figure out, hey, how do I make my rent payment? Yeah. How do I buy groceries uh, while Congress is kind of dithering over all of this? Well, and we're going to continue this conversation because, Chris, I want to ask you about a, a tweet that the president um, put out yesterday about working on executive orders when it comes yeah. to payroll tax cuts, eviction protections, uh, unemployment extensions, and student loan repayment options. Because we all are trying to understand exactly what authority the president has to <laughs> has to do with this. Chris, we talked about President Trump, his tweet yesterday, how he talked about working on these executive order when it comes to a payroll tax cut, eviction protections, unemployment extensions, and student loan repayment options. Executive orders, my understanding is some things he might be able to do, some things are dicier. I think that's exactly right. I think when you talk about uh, mortgage or rent relief, to the extent that the mortgages are backed by the federal government uh, or, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's someone who's in federal public housing, uh, I think that's certainly possible. I think, obviously, student loans, since a lot of them are backed by the federal government, um, some kind of extension of the moratorium is possible. Uh, the, the wholesale shifting of money to provide enhanced unemployment, I, I'm pretty dubious that you can do this. You know, it's a cardinal rule of appropriations law that uh, appropriated funds can only be used for appropriated purposes. So you can't just kind of move pots of money around. And what it appears that he's doing is that there's money that was in the CARES Act that they think has not been spent that they want to shuffle around. And the truth of it is that while it's not been spent, it's already been allocated. And a lot of that has already been allocated to to state and local governments. So all you're doing is basically robbing one pot for another pot, even if you could do it. So 
Um, he might be able to do some things, but he can't, he can't do everything that is being uh, discussed right now uh, in Congress. So speaking of uh, some of the president's actions, Chris, I've got to ask you about what's been going on with the president and China and TikTok and ByteDance and Tencent. Uh, what do you make of that from the perspective of someone who understands global trade, policy and u.s china relationships like what are we to make of this and and what's most likely to happen next in your estimation yeah so there there look there is a legitimate issue when we're talking about tiktok and wechat in terms of uh data being shared with the chinese government data about u.s users uh or the censorship that's on the wechat platform which we don't talk about enough but is a pretty big platform here in the united states among chinese americans um so there is a legitimate issue, and there's a bipartisan concern about it. It's the reason why, if you're a Department of Defense official, you, you're, you're instructed not to have TikTok on your phone. But how you're going about this is, is, is odd and, I think, um, you know, unconventional. Um, to use an executive order um, under the guise of national security uh, probably stresses, stretches the bounds of what I can th- consider appropriate. And I think what the president is doing with respect to TikTok in trying to force a transaction, uh, and then, you know, this thing he threw out the other day saying, hey, and the federal government should take a cut of that, um, you know, I think, again, stretches, I think, what Democrats or Republicans would, would say is acceptable behavior of the federal government towards the business. Um, and so, look, I, I think the aim um, is probably right in trying to rein them in, uh, but I have some serious questions about how he's going about doing this. In terms of the U.S.-China relationship, Chris, you know, I'm curious about some of the conversations you guys had in the Obama White House. I mean, are you surprised at how contentious it has become and kind of how this tech war between the two nations has progressed? Do you think we would have gotten there ultimately maybe in a different way? But, you know, China is a much more developed nation. It's much more important to the global economy. It's not like it was 10 years ago. Right, and I, and I would argue that if you wanted to counter China, the, the one thing we should have done um, was to pass to be part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I would have put the U.S. Um, in a trading relationship with uh, a lot of the other countries in Asia. So I think that was a huge missed opportunity uh, by this administration. And then obviously we've had you know, a trade war for the better part of uh, the Trump administration, which has now morphed into kind of a war over the you know, cause of coronavirus and, and how forthcoming they've been which is now morphed into kind of a tech trade war as well. Um, I don't think this is good, um, but I think we need to recognize, you know, the U.S.-China relationship is a complicated one. Uh, there are certainly areas where we need to find a way to collaborate with them on, something like um, climate change being the most right. important one. But there are obviously tensions. I mean, they are a rival economically and increasingly militarily. So I think we need to look at this in a, in a holistic way. Right. And, I, and my concern is that too much of these are kind of one-off yeah. battles between the U.S. and China without engaging our allies, and I think without having a clear understanding of two, three, four steps down the road. 
Absolutely. All right. Great context is always timely and insightful. We love catching up with you, Chris Liu, down at University of Virginia's Miller Center, and of course, a former member of the Obama administration. Great to get his insights. We're listening to Bloomberg Business Week, Jason Kelly, Carol Masser. And, you know, as we look to wrap up the first hour of the show, Carol, I think it's worth dwelling a bit, if we can, on our conversation with Chris Liu, only totally. because, you know, you and I were messaging to each other uh, back and forth toward the end of that interview. He's really become a go-to guy for us. And, and yes. I think one of the most important things to remember about him, and he really demonstrated in that conversation, was that he has worked across the various branches of government because we didn't get to talk about the Supreme Court. He worked in the judiciary system as well. So he knows all the levers. And so his perspective on what the executive branch can and can't do, I think, is critical right now in terms of figuring out what happens next. Yeah, totally. And that's why I love, you know, talking to him because he really does understand how government works, as you said, from the three branches of government. I put it out on Twitter. I put the link out for our uh, Apple podcast feed um, so that folks can, uh, it'll be uploaded a little bit later on, but definitely check it out. It's a great thing for, I was going to say the ride home, but you're home probably already. Yeah, exactly. So maybe for you could have a glass of wine at the end of the day and you want to listen dishes. a little bit. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts uh, doing dishes. All right. Uh, Joe Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, he is joining us from Massachusetts to talk about a really uh, interesting story. Uh, it's about Italy. It's about bicycles. And it really is a window into how we are recovering very unevenly, shall we say, from everything that's going on right now. Joel, tell us about this story by Vernon Silver. Well, on its face, it sounds like a great program, right? Uh, this bicycle bailout that Italy yeah. came up with. And that was what really um, intrigued me about it because, uh, you know, here, here's, a, here's a country known for bicycles and known for cycling and, um, it, and also goes to say, like, you know, let's have fewer automobiles on the road um, as this program is sort of attempting to do. But at the same time, it risks uh, alienating um, large uh, portions of the country who can't even afford to buy a bike in the first place, right? So what's ironic about this is that one of the ways that governments are attempting to stimulate the economy is to give consumers a break. But then you, there's so many people who have fallen on hard times during the t pandemic that what's really going to happen here is that we're going to have inequality be exacerbated. Yeah, I mean, I love I love this story, and I, I love what um, Vernon and the team write. You know, Joel, that they talk about you know these trillions of dollars. We were just talking about it with Chris Liu, who was in the Obama administration. You know, trillions of dollars that are going for everything, and by everything that sometimes means you know like a really expensive bicycle. And you're right, it's it's helping to kind of widen ultimately the income gaps that are already laid bare by the virus. Um, let's bring Vernon Silver into the conversation as well. He joins us right now, and uh, he is a projects and investigations reporter. And he joins us on the phone, I believe, from Rome. So. So Vernon, talk to us about this story because um, it really is a great read, but it also kind of makes you stop for a moment and realize, you know, the inequalities that are out there. Yeah, honestly, it's, this thing starts with the moment that Italy uh, comes out of the beginnings of, uh, of this lockdown. And one of the most noticeable things on the streets were the piles of boxes of bicycles and the crowds of people in front of the bike shop. Um, 
because when you are giving people essentially the ability to get a, a bike of up to a value of a thousand dollars at sixty percent off, um, people are going to grab it. Um, but those people are not, you know, the the Deliveroo bicycle guys. It's people like people, you know, that we saw and interviewed, which is, you know, someone who needs a couple a couple folding uh, bicycles to take to their beach house in Tuscany. So Vernon, how expensive were the bikes that that you bought? Okay, this is <laughs> you got me. Ouch! Ouch! <laughs> Joe Weber. I was, Zing. we have not discussed this and I was going to save it for the end, but I had to try, right? I mean, um, 300, so here's, here's, and this is interesting because this is also about inequality. Um, I sprung for a 300 euro bike. It's a, a mint green number with a brown seat. It's really nice. Um, but I did not go for the super expensive one because the decree that announced this thing said resident citizens in Italy of, lar- of cities could get this. And I'm not an Italian citizen, so I had no guarantee that I was going to get the, the rebate. And there, like tonight, literally tonight, the government is working on finalizing the wording of who exactly gets it. And I won't know yet if I get it. But if they keep it with just citizens, talk about inequality. Who are the people who are coming to Italy who need to do the jobs that might require a bicycle? Immigrants from Africa, from the Middle East, from you know Filipino uh, delivery yeah. men, right? Um, if you if you only give it to Italian citizens, you're cutting out like all the people who you can see on a daily basis who need a bicycle. So I might not qualify as somebody who's not an Italian citizen. For a um, second, for a second there, Vernon, I thought you were going to say, "Who really needs bikes?" Hardworking, award-winning journalists. <laughs> so, but I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad that you beer. clarified. And then we might have shut off your mic. I'm just going to exactly. tell you. <laughs> Um, No, but it really reminds us, right? These programs, I mean, I don't know. Are we supposed to say uh, it's not going to be perfect? We get it, and there are ways to hopefully fix it? I mean, I don't know. What's the takeaway from this reporting that you did? I mean, what's interesting is we made it global, right? We we put out the call to reporters around the world and came up with amazing stuff. You can get an electric car for free in Germany, Mm. but you have to have, you know, over 10,000 euros to spend on, on the electric car in the first place. You can get $25,000 uh, Australian back for renovating your house in the suburbs of Melbourne, but you have to own a house and you have to have the money to put up to do the, the renovation, right? These are, these are people with means. This is not getting the money to everybody. What we, from The Economist, what we got was really interesting is you can deploy as a government the money in a better ways, whether it's through paying everybody a living wage, no matter what, you know, whether they're out of work or not, um, you know, cutting everybody's payroll tax, just pumping money directly into the economy rather than doing it piecemeal in ways that might be less equal. So, I mean, that really brings it to a head, right, Vernon? Like you can either do these bailout programs that help consumers for for purchases of luxury items, let's call them. What in practice, is anybody got the other thing dialed yet? No, it's, it's, I mean, essentially, once you're spending trillions, you might as well throw it at, at everybody. I mean, on the other end, there are the richest families in countries like Italy that were able to borrow billions of dollars that they might not even need to pay back to run their companies. Maybe that's good. Maybe, you know, they don't have to fire workers, but they are, they are benefiting at the top end. People are benefiting at the middle. But, you know, if you have a fire hose of trillions, why not just spread it everywhere right. you know, is, is the reply that we got. Yeah. 
Interesting. Well, it is a tour de force of reporting, and I'm glad you mentioned sort of the call that went out to the Empire because it is a really yeah. nice uh, effort that you put together. Uh, as always, Vernon Silver joining us from Rome, uh, one of our senior writers at Bloomberg. Just love, love, love uh, his work, and it's a way to tell the story that mm -hmm. we don't always hear. Earlier in the week, yesterday, in fact, was the Bloomberg Equality Summit, the latest edition, and it was all about race on Wall Street, trying to make some significant changes. And I was fortunate to catch up with Henry Kravis. He is the co-chairman, co-CEO, co-founder at KKR, the private equity firm, been around for 40 plus years. It bears his name and that of his cousin, George Roberts and Jerome Kohlberg, their fellow founding partner. I also was joined by William Goodlow. He's the president and CEO of SEO. That is a group that works with people like Henry Kravis, who is the chairman of that group, to basically prepare mm -hmm. folks who come from more diverse backgrounds to work on Wall Street. Here is what Henry Kravis had to say. We're behind. Wall Street's behind. The C-suite is behind. We've all been slow in recognizing the problem and doing something about it. I really believe that maybe now, for a change, we have the opportunity to make a big difference. The, there's no question the numbers are bleak. Uh, you can look anywhere. Uh, there's no way that uh, the uh, uh, corporations and Wall Street firms have not hired the diverse candidates equal to or in excess of the percentage of the black population in America. That's 13%. None of us have that. But we have a long way to go, and I really believe uh, that we will. But let me just say it starts at the top. If the CEO of any company, whether it be Wall Street or C-suite, uh, has made a decision that they're going to make a change and they really are going to now make a difference, it will happen. We all have to overcome, in my view, the unconscious biasness that exists everywhere. You know, if you think about what uh, we all uh, go through every day, the slight injustices that minorities face every day is incredible. These slight injustices, white executives don't face. And so we've got to be patient. We've got to make a decision that we're going to change this. And it starts maybe not only with the CEO, but it starts with boards of directors. So if the board of directors is a diverse board of, of uh, directors for any company, you'll start to have a change. Let me give you an example. Okay, at KKR, we made a decision about two years ago that we were going to change uh, the makeup of the boards of all the companies that we controlled. And we had a goal to get to over 100 diverse board members in our portfolio companies. And I'm happy to say we got there. So now what we have to do, we've got to increase the hiring. It's, it's not just the hiring, but it's the training. It's being patient and working with diverse candidates that come in. So we have a long way to go. But if you make up your mind that you can do it, you'll do it. You'll get it done. 
So let's talk about getting it done. And William Goodlow, you are the CEO of SEO. And for anyone who's been paying attention to Bloomberg this week, the cover story of Bloomberg Markets uh, featured an incredibly powerful series of conversations. And as I talk to people about those conversations, there are a number of alumni of your organization there, William, talking about their experiences, talking about them in a very honest way. Help us understand what SEO does, especially when it comes to changing the face of Wall Street. It goes back to SEO's founding in 1963, with, founded with a mission to create a more equitable society. And that's at every level, including the highest uh, economic levels of society, because we know that talent is widely distributed and yet it's unevenly developed. And if there's one takeaway we hope your audience uh, takes is that SEO is in the talent development business. And we've been doing it for 57 years. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the murder of George Floyd brought more attention to some of the inequities in society, and, and we needed the protest to bring that attention to it. But the real change will come when we change the systems and the structures, and that's what SEO has been doing. Uh, each year, we serve over 4,000 young people, overwhelmingly Black and Latinx, uh, and we address systemic inequities through four different programs. SEO's founding program, the Scholars Program, serves high school and college students, 2,000 from New York City public schools alone. From grades nine through 12, students attend several hundred hours of intense SEO academic classes while still attending their public schools. By 12th grade, students are truly academically prepared for college level work. But SEO doesn't stop there. We provide comprehensive support for students throughout college and 90% earn a college degree versus 20% for similar students from low-income backgrounds nationally. And that is William Goodlow, the CEO of SEO, joined by Henry Kravis, of course, the co-founder, co-chairman, and co-CEO of KKR. Carol? Yeah, great conversation. I Thank think you. the more and more that we talk about this and we hear from the likes of someone like Henry Kravis or... Uh, William Goodlow, we get an idea of what's going on. We also get an idea of what the problems are and what still needs to be done. But I think we've got to make sure that this conversation continues to happen, Jason. Well, and it starts as the, at the top, mm -hmm. as Henry said. And that board of directors piece, I think, is really important because the governance of companies, it's got to change. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the drive to the close on this Friday to wrap up the trading week. Let's break it down with Jim Lowell, Chief Investment Officer of Advisor Investments. They're looking after a little more than $5 billion. Joining us on the phone from Needham, Massachusetts. Jim, how are you? How are things uh, up in the greater Boston area? <laughs> They're doing just fine. Uh, obviously, we live in uh, crazy times, not just in terms of COVID-19, but 
obviously in an election year and with a market that's probably uh, way ahead of the medical facts, we think now's a very good time to stay uh, rational, calm, collected, and, of course, disciplined. That is a great place to start. What does rational mean then? Does it mean gold, which has been on a tear? Does it mean cash and, you know, under the mattress? What does it really mean, Jim? Well, you certainly could have some cash on hand. We think it's wise, uh, both as a buffer for what we suspect will be increased volatility as we get closer to the election, uh, but also as some dry powder for opportunities that may manifest themselves along the way. If of course, we get a vaccine. Uh, all bets are suddenly going to be on uh, the economy being able to weather the storm, uh, the COVID storm, better than it than it will without it. Uh, but we also have been noticing gold. Certainly, our tactical models have been picking up on the on the gold trend. Um, our view is that gold is a very poor long term hold, but there are periods where. It can give investors not just emotional comfort, but even tactical return advantage. Um, Gold, of course, occupies that paradoxical space where investors tend to like it when they think the economy is going to heck. And uh, they also tend to like it when they think the economy is overheating. Um, We think we're probably in between those two two moments. And, And while we do think gold may have a little bit of room to run, uh, maybe even into next year, uh, we would be very cautious about uh, recommending it to anyone other than as a speculative bet. Jim, talk to me about China because you know we've talked a lot about it this week, sort of an I was going to say tactical way, but in a very specific way as it relates to TikTok and now more recently what's going on with Tencent. And I mean. The rhetoric is certainly being amplified, but these are some real actions potentially that are being taken. How, does that give you pause when you think about any exposure to China? How do you figure that into an investment thesis? So it's an excellent question, and we have been uh, cautiously moving uh, our gaze onto China, actually having a small stake in some some China-oriented positions inside of the actively managed funds that we own. Uh, we think that the rhetoric is likely never going to die down. But the the, the major trend, uh, I think, is that in my lifetime, I'm 60 years old, we've moved from an outright belief in a global economy to really a duopoly, U.S.-China, with every other country effectively playing second or third fiddle, some not even making it to band camp. So uh, we think you want to have some China exposure. You want to have U.S. exposure. But we suspect that there will be clashes uh, along along the uh, road in any given year, whether it's an election year, whether it's a Republican or Democratic president. China's been a hard country to bring to the bargaining table in any real way. All that said and done, it has grown its own economy better and better over the past decade to the point where we think there are some attractive opportunities. Which are what? Well, we definitely think that if you're looking inside of China and you want to look at uh, brands that Chinese consumers uh, tend to want to own, we, we our first interest in China was really, from an investment uh, angle, was perked by uh, Apple and wondering whether or not Brand America products we're going to get hurt by China's uh, social ranking system based on consumer purchasing behavior. And what we saw was an opportunity in brand China for the Chinese consumers. Mm. So we like, we like technology and consumer-related uh, sectors inside of China's economy. 
here at home, uh, we continue to love the battleship balance sheets of uh, blue chip dividend growers, uh, and healthcare remains a significant overweight in our portfolios. Talk to me more about healthcare, uh, because obviously so much focus on so many aspects of that, but healthcare is a big bucket. Drill down a level if you can. Healthcare is effectively 20 plus percent of our economy. So you're right. It is it is the biggest bucket in our economy. And when you look at the demographic demand from our aging population, that of Japan, that of Europe, there's obviously a, a necessary demand for more and less invasive ways to treat a whole host of of illnesses for an aging population. But then you also have emerging market demand where consumers are finally able to demand first any healthcare and then more and better ways to treat themselves through healthcare. So we think that it is a sector uh, that has uh, long-term benefits. Its risk-adjusted return profile is stellar. Uh, I would also say that when you look at healthcare, it is uh, increasingly uh, correlated to what's going on on the innovation side of the technology hub, which we also like. And so inside of healthcare, you get a great risk-adjusted, necessary demand story with some real innovation. Hey, you know, on the healthcare side, Jim, Jason and I have had conversations with a lot of, as you would expect because of the virus, you know, healthcare professionals, people who are running, you know, massive healthcare systems. One of the things they say is that we are increasingly and need to, but already slowly starting to move towards a system that's more about keeping folks well. We've talked about it a lot. We still have a long way to go rather than, you know, people coming in when everything's wrong, but rather, you know, this focus on keeping everybody well. Is that an investment play that you're thinking about seriously and making bets on, or you're kind of waiting to see how it works out? Well, I would say it's, it's kind of like thinking about investing in solar. If you own the major oils, you own uh, big stakes of solar power inside of their holdings. If you look at the HMOs, if you look at insurance companies, they're really trying to figure out ways to, as you say, help us live more healthfully. Not because they want us all necessarily to live more healthfully, but it's significantly better for their bottom line. And, of course, you know, tragically inside of COVID-19, what we see is just take the simple issue of obesity, having uh, a higher morbidity rate uh, with yeah. regard to COVID-19. So I think as a culture, um, this, may be a, this may be a turning point where we really all do look to live more healthfully. But, you know, don't tell that to Kraft Mac and Cheese. Right. Yeah, <laughs> or absolutely. Oreos. Yeah, Oreos. We've gone, we've gone long Oreos during this pandemic. All right, Jim Lowell, Chief Investment Officer for Thanks Advisor that. Investments, joining us on the phone from Needham, Massachusetts. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.